This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to Money and Markets. I'm Dan from Shares and with me is Laura from AJ Bell. Hi. This week, we're going to cover how markets have performed in the first quarter, why fraud is being ignored and how dual share class structures work. So with us this week is Steve Fraser from Shares. Hello. So firstly, Dan, I've been following the super dry soap opera with a massive bowl of popcorn. What has <laughs> happened this week? <laughs> Well, it's quite, it is quite remarkable. So Julian Dunkerton is the, one of the co-founders. And if you're not quite familiar with the backstory, um, I'll give you the, the, the eight-second uh, pitch. That, so he, he used to be the chief exec, he left the company, um, but still had an 18% stake in the business. He didn't really like what the new management were doing. Um, things like they were, they were sort of branching out into kids wear. And he was arguing that um, you know, if you're a 16 or 18-year-old uh, person and you're buying super dry clothes, you don't want to see some little five-year-old wearing the same things as you. It's no longer cool anymore. So he was sort of really critical and, and sort of got together with um, some other people and sort of said, I think we should, we should become the board again. We should become the chief exec and, and I'll bring a new chairman on board. So they've had this shareholder vote and he actually won by a very slim uh, majority. So eight directors have since quit and the share price is falling. So I, I, and two of the brokers quit as well, didn't they? Yeah. So yeah, it was, <laughs> it was, um, you know, it, it was always going to be sort of a, a sort of. We weren't sure how it's going to vote because it was dependent on these big shareholders in the business um, who aren't connected to to Julian Dunkerton, and you know, they've been giving sort of mixed messages now. So it's not going to be an easy business to fix. Uh, but you know, let's let's see where it goes. But I think one of the most interesting things. I've seen in terms of coverage of the actual sort of shareholder event was from this corporate governance agency called PIRC, PERC. Um, now, they made the point that Julian Dunkerton was criticising the board for not understanding fashion. Um, but they said, well, look at how the, exist- well, the existing board at the time uh, was dressed. They said five of them were wearing jeans and they also come from the sort of Jeremy Clarkson School of Fashion <laughs> where, where they would wear like a, a work shirt and um, some, some tidy shoes. But one of them actually had a pair of Converse on. <laughs> and they said actually it came, it came to Julian Duncan and um, the, his fellow co-founder, James Holder, he had a leather jacket on. So, you know, you think you, you do these sort of very important meeting to determine the future of the company, probably the future of their jobs. You would at least wear a nice suit. But, well, isn't that the big the big issue for them? Is that, um, they're no longer fashionable. So you can talk about teenagers wanting not to wear the same kids as six year olds. But I mean, it's already become dad's wear, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> well, I I don't I don't wear any. I know, I know Laura, you've have confessed, haven't you, before to having your wardrobe full of the clothes? <laughs> no, I said I really disliked it, oh, and yes, some sorry. people <laughs> really took offence at that. Slip of the tongue. <laughs> <laughs> I think I like to think that maybe I caused all of this furor to start with my comments on our podcast about how it was unfashionable. Yeah. <laughs> but the share price is now about five pounds, isn't it? It's fallen well, massively. It's fallen. I mean, it sort of it went up immediately on the news that Julian Dunkerton had won, and then by the end of the day, it fallen. But so the day after the event, really falling hard, which kind of shows either you've had shareholders who didn't vote for him saying, I'm sorry, I'm just going to wash my hands of it. I'm selling out at any price. That, that might be a reason. Or it might just be realisation that, yeah, yeah, yeah you, you've got in. Now, give us your plan. How are you going to fix it? And Because and, we don't really know that 
in detail yet. Maybe people are perhaps a bit nervous. Well, it begs the question as well, why the brokers have walked away? Because this is, in theory, a democratic process. And, and it's, OK, it's been one by one element of that process. But then why the brokers feel they have to walk away is does beg some questions, mm, OK, so um, the financial regulator has been in the news this week with something that we've talked about on the podcast recently. So, Laura, you've been looking at what's going on with innovative finance ISIS. I th- another area where we've been setting the agenda. We yeah. spoke a couple of weeks ago about the fact that advertising of it was slightly dubious and they were g- being compared to cash ISIS, and the regulator has now come out and said the same. Obviously listen to our podcast. Clearly, clearly. Um, <laughs> yeah, so they've warned that, that some of the marketing around them hasn't necessarily been quite right and that they've been compared to cash ISAs where they're far more high risk and has generally kind of issued an initial warning um, I don't think it's doing anything necessarily at this stage it's more just kind of a, a first warning and it's interesting that it comes right at the end of ISA season which is where there's loads more advertising from these firms and, and a big push for, for firms to sign these up these are the, um, the uh, peer-to-peer lending ISAs, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, which were launched a couple of years ago and actually so far have had, in their first year, they had really, really low take-up. That increased a little bit, but they've definitely not become a massive product. But then they're also, as we discussed before, not a mass market product. They're actually quite risky and probably only suitable for a small subset of investors. It's quite a new market, isn't it? The, the, the whole kind of peer-to-peer thing. We've seen funding circle on the stock market at the moment, and it's it's, it's very new. This 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 business, so it certainly should be seen as 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 high risk. Yeah, exactly, and kind of unproven so far. But now we're alarmingly three months into the year, which I'm not quite sure where that time's gone. But Dan, you've been looking at what's happened for markets so far this year, and actually, it's pretty positive it's, right it's really good um you know, from last year was very miserable uh, but this year every single one of the major stock markets around the world um if you'd have your money invested in it made you you would have made a positive return so the biggest one is actually china um so they're sort of looking at the different indices that they're between sort of roughly 24 29 percent gains i mean that's you know in three months in three months that's massive that is very good so and, and the US is the second best, um, looking at between sort of 13 and 16% gains. Again, these, these are really, really good returns. Certainly not what you would expect in a three-month period. Um, but there is sort of a sense that there's lots of stimulus programs behind this uh, regain of investor confidence and wanting to put money in these markets. Um, so with China, this is potentially down to fiscal stimulus so this is where they've been cutting taxes for small companies and also increasing public spending on infrastructure in the u.s it's all potentially down to monetary stimulus so i mean these are sort of complicated terms but um, in essence the 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 federal reserve which is central bank in america sort of said well we're not going to put interest rates up um, now for the rest of the year well they've kind of indicated that's that's their direction Um, and they're going to stop something called quantitative tightening so this is um, quantitative tightening quantitative easing are sort of words that you you probably quite familiar with if you follow markets over the last 10 years but in a nutshell quantitative easing is when the economy is not doing very well so central banks will go and buy uh, bonds by creating new money they go they go out and buy bonds and the, the people who are owning those bonds like banks therefore will have more cash that they can use to lend people, um, and that creates jobs. Hopefully, companies will invest in in staff, and it stimulates the economy. Um, but after a while, you get to the point where 
central banks going, well, you know, economies are sort of picking up now. We'll do this thing called quantitative tightening. And, and this, in essence, they're trying to wind down this balance sheet. So they will start to reduce the amount of um, taking bonds that have matured and reinvesting that money. They'll just stop reinvesting it. So um, we've been in a situation where, particularly in the US, there have been quantitative tightening. But now there seems to be it's stopped. So investors are saying, well, hang on a minute. Um, the Fed's clearly worried about global economy. Are they going to start giving us more monetary stimulus again? So when they go out and start buying bonds again, it, it kind of it pushes up the price and it pushes down the yield. So bonds don't look as attractive as shares. So everyone starts to become more excited about shares again. So it, 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 that's a, it can be a bit of a complicated thing to get your head around. But in essence, there's a, there's a feeling for investors that central banks are going to be supportive once again. And we're seeing it in Europe again. So I think that's potentially one of the reasons why shares in so many parts of the world have shot up. Um, and is part of it, could part of it just be because obviously towards the end of last year, last quarter of last year, we saw um, a big kind of nosedive in markets and particularly in some of the big tech firms. And so is part of this maybe just a kind of rebounding and levelling out of that? I think so. If you look at the UK stock market, so the, the FTSE 100 is up about 8% in the first quarter of this year, which again is a really good performance. But I, I've drilled down into um, the sectors that have done well. And you've got retail is one of them. I know that, that's that's that I'm seems very surprising. Su- yeah, it is quite surprising. And another one surprising is tobacco. So both of these had a pretty horrible time last year. Now tobacco has been uh, really hammered, and so loads of fund managers will be saying, well, you know, actually this is still an industry which has got a lot of demand, um, and these shares are potentially looking quite cheap. And and so you've had lots of funds that have been buying into this sector. I think that's why tobacco's up. Retail. It's actually down to stuff like companies just simply coming out saying, you, know, you thought we were going to do this and we're doing better. So Dunelm. Yeah, I think we've had months of, of lowered expectations, haven't we? Yeah. So it's, it's a reaction to that, isn't it? Yeah. So if you look at the, yeah, look at the companies that have done well. So Dunelm is, you, is a place where um, you go and buy pillows and cushions, I think. I, I must confess I've never actually been to Fancy it. furnishings. Yeah, fancy furnishings. So, I mean, th- they've come out and saying you know, things are going really well for them. JD Sports is doing very well. Um, and Pets at Home, which has been a disaster for years on the stock market, is coming out and saying, we've kind of fixed our problems. And so analysts are upgrading the earnings forecasts. And that is a real key driver for share prices. Um, but if you look at some of the other sectors that have been doing well, it's industrial metals. So that's commodities demand is being quite strong. And that could be linked to China. So if you've got people are thinking that the trade war, there might be a positive resolution to it. Or if there's all this money being pumped into infrastructure projects, that helps uh, things like industrial metal companies. So this is Evraz and Verexpo and things like software, computer services, that's done very well. And, and Steve, I know, you, you know, Steve is our in-house tech guru. So what, you know, why, why, do you, why have software been doing well this year on the, on the UK market? Well, I mean, the irony is, is in the UK, you've got very few large software companies in the sort of digital age. I mean, you, you've got um, fairly mature businesses that are, are very dominant. So Sage, a big accountancy software firm, is, I think, the biggest of the, of the software companies in the UK. Um, it, it would be run close by Microfocus, which whole business model is built on on legacy IT infrastructure. And it, it's a specialist in this COBOL language that, that um, lots of financial applications are run on. So, so these are the kind of driving forces, rather than being the kind of digital economy superstars that you tend to get in the US. 
And I, I think that the valuations are being looked at. You know, these are companies that have massive cash flows. They pay really attractive dividends, and they've been around for donkey's years. So you know, it's not quite the same investment dynamic as buying, you know, Facebook or, or Lyft or something like that. Mm. I guess stuff like Microfocus and Sage, they, again, they they had a pretty tough time, didn't they, last year on the stock market? So it's just finding their feet and, and sort of bouncing. Sure. Back. I mean, with, micro, with, with Microfocus and another big company, Aviva, which does design engineering design software, um, they've they've uh, launched these massive takeovers. They're very complex mergers, um, and I think. Uh, it's just taken months to to, to, to to find their feet and, and get the synergies through and get the execution through. That's starting to come through now with both those companies and you're starting to see that reaction now that the, the, the future looks brighter than, than the, the, the recent past. With Sage, is a bit more of a legacy cloud adoption issue um, and it's still not actually found a solution to that because it used to you know, send around CDs and you're plugging your CD to your terminal, very license-based, and it's trying to transition to the cloud and that's not easy for it to do. So I just think what one final point think about the market's performance at the moment is if it's been driven on a broader basis by by investors thinking that central banks will inc- increase liquidity once again, that isn't necessarily good for the long term. The market's been too reliant on this sort of central bank support for ages. Um, it really should come down to the merits of companies. Um, are they doing well or not? And, and well, is the economy doing well? Isn't it quite interesting that, that uh, lots, lots of economic data that's come out over, over several months now has actually been reasonably robust? So where you've had doom-monger saying about you know, recession is around the corner. Um, there's really, really no evidence that that's, that's on, on, on the agenda in, in the short-term term. So the recent stock market debut of ride-sharing app Lyft has re-sparked a debate about dual share classes and whether they're fair. So before we get into it, Steve, can you actually explain what are dual share class? Yeah, but these are largely, um, uh, they're not operated in the UK, very, they're very rare in the UK. Effectively, you get two types of shares. So founders of a company will say, we, we basically want to control the company. So we will keep a bunch of shares that will have significantly more powerful voting rights. So uh, the likes of, of you and me, uh, normal investors, get much reduced voting rights. So your say is not one share, one vote. You have maybe one vote versus the founders' 20 votes per share or something like that. Now, the design of this is purely about leaving the decision-making process in the hands of founders. It's a very, very contentious issue. Uh, The democratic way to look at this is you get one share, one vote, and everyone's in the same boat together. Um, Of course, the the counter-argument to this is it leads to short-termism. So, ultimately, companies get sold much uh, much too quickly or they um, just, you know, people just taking money off the table much too quickly. And if you leave founders in charge, um, they can afford to take a much longer term view, um, maybe five or even 10 year views, and not worry so much about the sort of day to day machinations of the market and meeting quarterly in the US, certainly earnings expectations, um, which can hamstring their, their, their longer term strategy. So, you know, very much I feel that in the UK, we would not like these kind of dual stru- structures. But we're starting to come around to the idea that it does potentially cost us the idea of, of creating a, a Google of our own. Um, lots of IT analysts and fund managers have been ar- arguing for ages, why doesn't the UK make, it, make a, an Amazon or a Google or a Microsoft? And, and partly this is, is, is a factor. It's not the only factor, but it's, it's, it's a factor. If you took the example of Superdry, which we were talking about earlier, though, in that instance, if Julian Dunkerton had had these 
preferential shares where he'd had more votes, then on a vote like like that one, he could effectively have more power to vote himself back in, though, right? Is there a, if, if so he I guess shares, is, yeah. Is there then room for kind of manipulation of that if those founders have more power than other shareholders? Yeah, possibly. I mean, that's that's an argu- uh, yeah, argument, to be, uh, a valid argument, but you might also say that um, if you want to take a bigger control of a company, um, you want someone in the decision-making progress, process to have a long-term view of the business. Um, having people in control of decisions who are reactive to um, fund managers who might have one, two or three-year timeframes in which to earn their bonuses is not necessarily the best way to run a business for the long term. So certainly there is there is no um, right or wrong answer here. It's, it's, it comes down to, well, what do you prefer? And, and we have to decide that as a, as a market amongst ourselves in the UK. And presumably it didn't dampen any appetite from shareholders to buy Lyft shares at the... No, I mean, in, in the US, they're pretty, they're pretty used to the system now. I mean, loads of, of, of tech companies that you would have heard of, like Snap, the owners of Snapchat, and even Amazon, Facebook, um, Google, they, they have shares that have um, dual values. Um, ultimately, it hasn't dampened the, the demand initially into the IPO, but subsequently, <laughs> the share price has, has fallen quite sharply, and, and that's not unusual for a lot of these fairly hyped-up VC-backed companies to come to the market, um, and then when you start looking at nitty-gritty, you realise, actually, this is going to be quite hard to make some money out of this in any t- any kind of reasonable time frame. So, um, you know... Lyft is, 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 a, is a very challenged company, certainly. But some companies even have no voting rights, don't they, in, in America? Yeah, Google's so, one yeah. of the famous, and, and Facebook as well. Um, I mean, whether you have one versus 20 or one versus 50, you might effectively say it's, it amounts to the same thing, realistically. Um, but from a, a private investor's point of view, though, I mean, is this really an issue? Because, you know, you're a minority, a tiny minority shareholder. You basically have no votes anyway, do you? I mean, if you, if you feel differently to the, 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 the mainstream fund managers and the, the, the big holders of any company you own, you're pretty much sidelined, aren't you? Yeah, but, but, but then, you, you know, if, if you have a, a, a large group of retail shareholders with the same view, um, you know, you still have the opportunity to have, um, to have a say. Sure. So, I, I, yeah, I think it's probably wrong to say you have no, no power, but, um, but yes, you're right. A lot of these big votes are dominated by the very large yeah. shareholders. And you see this at lots of AGMs where there'll be a contentious remuneration report, for example, and they can sometimes get voted down, but they very rarely do. Um, and so finally, uh, the number of people affected by fraud has been increasing, but it's largely going ignored by police. So, Laura, you've been looking into this. Yeah, so there was a new report out this week from the Inspectorate of Constabulary, which basically criticised police forces for not dealing with fraud cases um, quickly enough or just sidelining them. Um, and so their argument was that things like violent crimes got prioritised much more than these people that have been defrauded out of quite often their entire life savings. Um, And the report was quite critical of various different police forces saying that they'd failed to pursue cases even when they'd had suspects identified or very good evidence in the case. And it found one police force had put aside or or not investigated 96% of the fraud cases. Wow, that's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, which is massive. But I think it's for anyone that's kind of been following the ongoing problems with fraud and the kind of rise in, in bank fraud, that doesn't necessarily seem surprising. People... If they get defrauded out of this money, they report it to something called action fraud. Um, but 
very often little action is actually taken and, and very often these people aren't tracked down. Um, and I guess what is a life-changing amount of money for the people that lost it is necessarily not big enough for some police forces to spend their time and resources on. So is it, is it down to the banks, actually? Should they be spotting... Like, say, if you were asked to make a very large transaction to someone... You know, I saw, I thought that a lot of them would sort of perhaps call you up and say, "Is this true?" You know, I've certainly had it myself. When I'm, let's say, I'm transferring an actually relatively small amount of money, a bank has called me and said, "We just want to check, make sure, did you did you action this? Or is it true?" Which you know, is that something that banks are sort of obviously under pressure to do more about themselves, as the police are not doing it? It's the dynamics around fraud are so interesting, and in my previous job, I did lots of reporting and dealing with kind of victims of fraud and how that whole process works. And it is slightly mind-boggling how so many things fall through the cracks in the process. But yeah, there's banks have definitely improved. And I've even noticed uh, when I've logged onto my bank account and when you make a transfer to a friend or something for money you owe, there's lots more warnings now where previously there wasn't. Um, but the big issue before was banks wouldn't pay compensation for people that have been duped into transferring money. So quite often this fraud happens where someone will call you up and they'll say there's been a problem with your bank account or they'll come up with some spurious reason why you need to move money. They'll convince you to move money and, and you'll move away your life savings. Now the bank says, well, that's your fault for being duped into it. And so because they weren't bearing the cost of it, there was little impetus for them to bring in more safeguarding and more measures because they're not footing the bill for it. You're, as the victim, you're kind of left to try and track down money, um, which is most most often than not impossible there was lots more pressure put on banks and they've now actually loads of them have signed up to this voluntary code where victims will be reimbursed and there's more onus on banks to ensure that certain processes are followed so the hope is that that will then improve things and will mean that more onus is on the bank to prevent the fraud happening in the first place because if you're if you're card details get skimmed for your credit card which happened to me a few months ago um, the bank will almost immediately refund you that money but there seemed to be a very different thing where you've been called up or emailed and convinced to transfer your money they treated that very differently there's, there's quite a lot of education around that though isn't there lots of tv ad advertising campaigns trying to warn people about about this it's surprising that so many people don't seem to have cl clicked onto this message that, you know, if it looks a bit dubious don't do anything, and then go through normal routes to, to contact your bank or whatever and, and, and speak to them directly. That's kind of how banks covered their themselves, uh, by having these educational programs and saying, oh, we're warning customers consistently about it. But the fraud is so sophisticated now. It's so easy to say, oh, these people have just been duped and they've been mm. a bit stupid. But actually, when you hear about some of the cases and the technology that these fraudsters use and the emotional tactics that they use... Um, there's lots of instances where I would speak to victims and I would think, yeah, I would be duped by that as well. And I write about it all day and I, I right. hear about how the scams work. So it's things like sending text messages that appear as though they're from the bank and they appear in your in your mobile phone in the same stream of text that you've got from your bank. Um, it's calling up from numbers that say they're coming from your bank. It's intercepting emails. So one of the big ones is where emails from builders or solicitors are intercepted, uh, new bank details are sent, and then those are obviously fraudulent bank details and, and the fraudster makes off with your entire house right. deposit. So I definitely agree with you, and I think I probably had that view of like people who've just been a bit silly, but these fraudsters are so sophisticated now, which I guess 
brings us full circle back to the police stuff. They haven't been challenged enough, and so they've been allowed to kind of build up the f- sophistication. I mean, isn't the, the point of the police though is to is to pursue where there's a suspicion of of, of law breaking, but to prove that there's there's something suspicious is not down to the police to go and look at every transaction, presumably, and, no. and assess whether or not something something illegal has happened. Yeah. That's down to the banks and the institutions and and the, and and us members of the public. Yeah, definitely. Um, but I think particularly what this report pointed out this week is if there are no repercussions, if these cases aren't followed through and no one's prosecuted for it, then where's the deterrent from fraudsters not doing more and more of this? Which is all slightly depressing. So sorry for that. But um, also we're going to do um, a thing on a future podcast about kind of battling fraud and a lot of top tips and handy stuff to kind of help people out and to help you spot this fraud and there is hope now the um the banks have signed up to this voluntary code and people get reimbursed it's obviously not going to help those people that have been victims of fraud till now but when the code comes in in may um i hope it's going to reimburse a lot more people and hopefully it will lead to a lot better outcomes for good fraud. that sounds good so I think that's all we've got time for this week. But thanks a lot for listening. Um, as ever, you can send any thoughts or ideas you have to podcast at ajbell.co.uk and we'll see you next week. Thanks. Cheerio. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. The podcast talks about various money issues. Just don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. You should also recognise that how an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future and that tax rules apply. Music